a Podcast One production. People don't realise just how easy it is to have their identity stolen. When we perform ethical hacks, we use super low-tech solutions to find out information about people. I mean, going through garbage bags, looking in people's mailboxes, looking on social media. All we really need to steal someone's identity is their address, maybe their date of birth, their name. Questions often pop up like their mother's maiden name, who their electrical provider is what they last spent on their statement. Most of these questions that organisations like banks and governments ask are very easy to find by scrolling through social media sites, looking through people's garbage or looking through mailboxes. So just have a think next time you throw away that electricity bill. Maybe you should have a think about shredding it. I'm not just talking about personal precautions here. I'm also talking about corporations taking their employees' data very seriously. It's so easy to find out information about employees, their first name, last name, their address, their tax file number. All these things can be used to steal a person's identity, which can then be used to target the organisation. Something as simple as using the accounts lady's identity to move funds from a corporation's bank account is going to look far less suspicious than a random person's identity being stolen. So it really puts the organisations at risk, it puts the individuals at risk, and corporations just aren't taking it seriously enough. In fact, when I go in and ask corporations about their risk registers, they often say that their staff information is pretty low because people already know they work there. But it's not low. That information and data can be used to massively harm the organisation and the people who work for that organisation. We're going to talk a bit more about that later in the episode. So to talk on that, we've got Fergus Brooks in the studio, ex-head of Cyber Risk and Insurance. We've also got Professor David Lacey from ID Care. Why don't you kick us off, David, and tell us what ID Care do? Yeah, sure. So it's a national identity and cyber care service available to the community. It's a charity, provides free and anonymous advice for people that have concerns about their personal information and whether that originates from a, a hacking of a computer or a a telephone scam or losing your wallet or purse, um, and it's there to provide that really intimate, personalised support service for those people that are experiencing those those events. So maybe we can cover off. So when we are paid to do an ethical hack, the first thing we do is look for individuals in an organisation that have access to some of the targets that we're trying to get, whether that be data or banks or information. And we do that by literally picking up the phone, jumping onto social media, finding out as much information we can about people and essentially trying to steal their information to use it against them. What are some examples you've got, David, of that happening in the real world? Yeah, I think probably the most common method that, that people are having their identity or personal information compromised in Australia at the moment is actually via the telephone, which is a more an analogue, I guess, way of doing things and a, and a, and a probably less sexy way of doing things. But most people that, that engage our services have volunteered their information to scammers, thinking it's a legitimate organisation or a legitimate uh, reason. And then from there, they're experiencing unauthorised access to uh, their online accounts or applications in their name. And some of the information can be pretty benign, and you might think it's completely innocent. For example, we've used telephone attacks just to find out whether people are at work or not. If they're not at work, then we know we can access their computer with less suspicion. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, 
you know, there's certain apps as well that, that allow perpetrators to gain an insight as to whether or not someone's uh, on holidays or away from their, their home or their work that, that can also flesh out that unique window for a perpetrator to exploit. And, and a lot of people are, are good-natured and trusting and probably in retrospect when they're confronted with these crimes, uh, wish they hadn't uh, volunteered that information so willingly. I think it's uh, definitely in Australia we see people are, are willing to help, and, and which is a good thing, but obviously in the cybersecurity space, not so good. We see um, lots of people handing over information that allow us to build up a bit of a database that um, can then help us create fake identities. And David, you could probably tell me a bit more about why they would do that, but when we're doing it from an ethical hacking point of view, we're looking to build up enough information to potentially open a bank account or to get bills redirected. And one of the reasons criminal organisations do this is we need a middle person to move money about. So a criminal organisation have found a vulnerability that allow them to transfer maybe $100,000 out of one bank account. Then we need a fake identity to move that into a bank account. And then we need a means to actually transfer that money, say, into cryptocurrency or some other forms where we can actually get it out as a criminal organisation. Yeah, look, it's, it's, there's a lot of moving parts to that transnational crime jigsaw puzzle that, that you've just painted. And, and identity is key to a big part of that, you know, having someone's personal information and building someone's personal information uh, will help enable any number of those key requirements that organised crime has, whether it be you know, establishing a, a transaction account with a bank or, you know, moving money through a remitting service or getting access to government services, the key connection or common thread across almost all of that is getting and building access to people's personal information and, and with that getting access to credentials. And we've touched on it in uh, other episodes, but once you've built up a bit of a database of people, you know, what football team they follow, the name of their pets, the name of their children, the name of their spouse and birthdays, it becomes very easy to guess a large portion of the population's usernames and passwords, which then gives you access into many different systems. Absolutely. We had a, a client in country New South Wales who experienced what we call a mobile phone porting event where their mobile phone went to an SOS signal, which meant that it had lost its uh, service with the carrier that, that they were with. Uh, the criminal had impersonated them with another carrier, convinced them that they were the actual individual that they were impersonating and ported their phone number uh, to another device in order to intercept passwords or what we call second factor authentication codes. That method alone has, has grown exponentially in the last two years in particular, and the crooks are wanting to gain access to those second factor authentication codes for access to banks or access to government services and even access to, to telco accounts. And, and the crooks in, in performing that act actually started with the theft of that individual's mail. And as it was described to us in, in working with that client, what they didn't have amongst all the information that they managed to click through their mailbox was their date of birth. Uh, but they knew they were a member of a particular gym. So the crooks rang that gym, impersonated the um, the person who engaged us and managed to convince them to say, hey, listen, I'm not sure you've got my right date of birth. What's the date of birth you have in your system? And the gym volunteered that date of birth. And that was a, a key requirement for the criminals in order to port that mobile phone service and then get access to those 
those passwords and codes. So we actually use two-factor authentication breaches. So you as an individual log on to your net bank or your, your banking facilities. You want to transfer some money out to a new account. Most bank accounts now require that t- second-factor authentication. Bang, you've ported the number, you've got the code. Move money around anywhere you want. Yeah, look, I think uh, 2FA is also used for um, a lot of popular email accounts, um, also used for government services. So almost all of the the misuse crime that we see when an identity has been compromised, sort of the crime that happens then next, um, is very much skewed towards a financial uh, benefit that the criminals are after. Um, Ironically, most of the criminal activity that we see are based offshore. And, and then that adds another level of complexity there, particularly for a law enforcement perspective as to, well, what can you do about a perpetrator who's committing these crimes from offshore? And we've, I guess one of the key themes that we've seen over the last five years and the last 20 years of my time working in this space is organised crime offshore has actually made this a volume crime. You know, it, it, it once upon a time it was opportunistic. It was a, a criminal in Australia that was pinching a wallet or a purse and you know, doing damage with that identity. Now what we've seen is it shift very much front and centre as a key part of, of organised crime and that organised crime is not necessarily just focused on identity crime or cyber crime. They've got other criminal interests, but it's such a critical enabler now uh, and it's a mainstream that there's a real challenge on how we respond to it, uh, particularly when the crooks aren't here. So we know a breach costs a business in Australia on average $260,000. What are the steps that an organisation or a person would take and are businesses putting in place systems to actually deal with identity fraud? For example, you know, if, if money's taken and suddenly you owe this large sum of money through maybe a phone fraud um, attack and you suddenly owe Telstra 120000 do Telstra work proactively or is it a huge challenge for the individual? Look, to be honest, it, it, it varies dramatically. There, you know, there's no... There's no one consistent response to any number of these different scenarios. The, the risk is fairly consistent. So the risk is somebody's going to impersonate a customer to get access to products or services or get new products and services. And that's the same within government and business. Um, we, we spend a lot of time uh, actively testing responses of organisations, but from the, from the perspective of the consumer. So... If somebody sets up a personal loan in my name uh, with a particular financial institution, IDCare would know precisely what the response journey is going to be like in that scenario with that institution. And, and we have a, a library of over a thousand of these response plans we test quarterly. So we we look at things like, you know, is it obvious on their website what a customer in this situation needs to do? If, is it obvious? Are there multiple and alternative channels of communication I can engage with? Is it is the advice consistent? Am I transferred 300 times? Am I on hold 40 minutes plus? So all of that adds to the harm to the consumer. We have the the saying within the case management centre, if you're not harmed by the crime, you almost certainly will be by the response. And some are getting better. I was seeing a lot of positive change and shifts happening with the financial institutions. Uh, But there's other industries and government agencies as well that have a bit of maturing to do. And so that's a key part of what we're trying to do there. So it can be pretty scary for the individual. They've got the loan in their name. They obviously haven't made payments because they never applied for the loan in the first place. 
the organisations have automated systems that eventually refer you to a credit agency that can affect your credit rating. If it gets that far, how easy is it for them to claw back and, and get the credit rating reversed and obviously get the loan out of their name? What sort of time period are we looking at there? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that speaks to the, the, the 20, 20 to 30 non-consecutive hours responding. I think um, going back to that point around empowering people with knowledge, we all have certain rights when it comes to credit. So we all have under the Privacy Act an opportunity to get access to our credit report every year for free. A lot of Australians don't know that. We also have a right that if we think that our identity has been compromised, we have a right to put a ban on our credit file so that if somebody goes to impersonate me with a bank, the bank will theoretically go to check my credit report, but they won't be able to because I put a ban on in it. That's also a right we have to, to apply for those for free. And do you have any stories of something going very wrong for an individual, like a case study of how badly things can get? I think one that that, that comes to mind that transcends small business and, and individuals as a, uh, a car sales yard in Brisbane that had uh, had experienced a an attempted ransomware attack and the attacker had sought to convince the business that they would encrypt their files. So that's a little bit different than we typically see where an email might be received and you click on a link and then all of a sudden the the files are encrypted and then a message appears and says, well, to pay us X amount of money, we'll decrypt it for you. That's generally the, the the method of operation for ransomware. But in this one, the crook had engaged them and said, I'm about to do it. They ignored it. Uh, somebody then had actioned another email that was obviously related to the attacker, but not known at the time. And then lo and behold, that encrypted. The business then went about paying uh, the ransom and uh, a portion of the files were decrypted, not all. And then the attacker came back and said, well, I've also harvested credentials of people that are wanting to test drive a car. And that included scanned copies of driver licenses, which is a very key and high risk credential from an identity theft perspective. And so another suggestion of paying more ransom was put on the table by the attacker and the business made the decision that the, the files that had yet to be decrypted weren't of use to them and, and then ignore the demands. And from there we saw a whole bunch of people that had gone through that dealership call our services unbeknownst to them, uh, expressing that I'd experienced loans taken out in their name and all sorts of things. And then we triangulated those clients with this particular breach. Uh, and so that small business was then confronted with the reality that they hadn't just experienced a ransomware attack, that experienced then a a significant misuse vulnerability to their to their customers. They'd reported it to police. Police had said, go to an online reporting network. They didn't hear anything from there. They went to another government agency. They then got referred to ID Care and and we worked with them around how to how to respond to that identity risk to both their business and their staff as well as their customers. And that took weeks. When it comes to families and when it comes to things that are, you know, like cyberbullying, identity theft, this kind of stuff, I mean, what sort of approach do you think parents should be taking in terms of uh, helping their children to understand what's going on, especially taking into account that there is a generational gap? So, so what are your thoughts on that, David? Look, I think it's, it's something that absolutely has to start in the home, 
it's not it's not a conversation that we should say well that's that's the school's role only pleasingly we're seeing cybersecurity curriculum sort of seep into schools uh, in primary schools which is great and I think that's where it absolutely needs to start I've got four four children and they're all under 13 and and they've all got you know tablets and a couple of YouTube channels and you know so they're they're in it up to their eyeballs, but um, but that that's a conversation that that we have at home frequently is around, you know, what are the things that I need to be really paying attention to, not just around the cybersecurity threat, but around you know their <laughs> their own behavioural risk in terms of what they might post online or what might come back to bite them when they're applying for their first job. So it's it's a conversation I think that's very much one that parents or guardians need to um, embrace, which is difficult because, you know, as you know, I'm with you, Fergus, I, um, I remember a world without the internet and, um, and for some of our generation and, and our parents, uh, it's an uncomfortable space because it's, it's filled with mystery and uncertainty and, and, but we need to break through that. And there's a bunch of resources out there that can really help us. The eSafety Commission has done some great stuff online that's pushing facts and, and information that can help parents and guardians have those conversations. I don't see it as one that we should say, well, that, oh, hands in the air, that's that's for the school to worry about, not me. So, David, it's really interesting hearing from your side of things, from the protective side of things. We're obviously, obviously paid to attack and find out this information. If you're an individual and you have just splashed your information out there everywhere and there's that saying that once it's online, the information can never truly be deleted... What can someone do? You know, things out there like their date of birth, their family, their football teams, their their home address, it's just splashed all over the internet. What are some steps they could take to kind of wind that back a bit? Yeah, I think I think there's a need to to frequently look at, at uh, attempting to purge as much as you can about information that you have about yourself that you've got control of that may create risks for you. A lot of people think, you know, my name, my date of birth – you know, that, that's a really high risk piece of information. It's not, they're not, you know, there's not a lot a crook can do with just a name and a date of birth. But once you sort of, once you reach 16 or 15 and you post your learner's permit online to say, look, everyone, I can drive a car now, that, that's when things can get really risky. And we often advocate for people that on email, don't store the stuff that's coming through or that you're sending that's, that's potentially high risk like tax file numbers and passport information and, you know, driver license details or Medicare cards or, or whatnot, you know, be vigilant about removing that information. And that's not just information about yourself that might be on your email account, but also others. Um, you know, take stock of that and think twice about what you're saying and what you're putting in that online context. And are there any services that someone could utilise to actually find out what information there is about them online? Yeah, there are. There's more in the US than there are in Australia and and, um, and very shortly we'll be, we'll be releasing a, a capability that will allow people to not just see what's available about themselves in the, the surface level web or, you know, what you would find if you type in your name on Google, um, but also what data aggregators may have about you. So... We've been doing some trialling of that for, for that very reason. You know, we want to... Empowerment, I think, is the key to all of this. You know, we can, we can beat the drum and ask people to be 
cyber secure, but if we don't give them the tools and the knowledge to be cyber secure, then we're defeating our objective. You know, there's services are limited at the moment in Australia and across the Tasman, but we're we're spearheading a lot of effort in that space and in the next few months watch this space. So we've seen a prevalence rising over the over the last several years of these, you know, personal personal digital assistants and that you have in your home that effectively listen the whole time waiting for a keyword. Uh, and then once they've got the keyword, then they will perform an action, et cetera, et cetera. But that can also be to search the internet, play music, et cetera, et cetera. Do these kind of devices increase potential risk of identity theft in, in your mind, Bastian? Well, I think they definitely increase the attack vector. These services that are put in place by the likes of Amazon and Google have been very well thought through generally and obviously use encryption, but people connect them to insecure systems and once something's connected to an insecure system, then you can peel data off all sorts of things. I mean, it scares me the amount of times I've been to a uh, board member or an executive member's home and they've got the default username and password on their Wi-Fi and their home router. Once an individual has actually accessed your home network and you happen to have an Amazon Alexa on there and it happens to have a, a default username and password, there are already firmware upgrades that you can do to hack the Amazon Alexa and hack Google Home, which allow um, interception of streams of data, which could be voice data, video data, text data. So for sure, it creates risks that the whole of humanity, I guess, is facing as a challenge at the moment, for lack of a better word. Are you seeing from the ID care side of things, David, um, some breaches relating to IoT that have led to identity fraud? Yeah, we, we are. We, we Probably the ones that, that come to mind more recently have been uh, car information systems. So people ring up and say, I've had a conversation with someone and a third party's come in saying, I've just listened in uh, and this is what you've spoken about. So we've had that a few times. And uh, baby monitors as well. And I think... I think as IoT continues to grow and, and opportunities present for product and service delivery, you know, quite often the cyber security component to that is is not necessarily front and centre. Apple, for example, you know, in, in earlier versions of the iPhone, if a particular setting was in place, Siri could actually unlock the iPhone for you uh, without having to know the pin. Well, even we've seen uh, iMessage, so if you... If you happen to have someone's iCloud account or Apple account, you can then spy on the individuals and that's SMSs, WhatsApp messages. It's um, pretty scary stuff. There's also the, the, for me personally, one of the most frightening stories I've heard uh, in recent history was the parents fast asleep in their room, baby being protected by the Nest baby camera, and all of a sudden they awoke to sexual expletives coming from the, uh, the baby monitoring system. Um, the attacker managed to turn the lights on in the room and then turn them back off again and stated over the monitor that the, they were here to kidnap the baby and they were in the baby's room. So the parents obviously bolted upstairs and, and then luckily the baby was fast asleep in the crib and everything was okay. But it shows the level of control and what people can do with these IoT devices and how scary it can be as a, as a parent. I would find that absolutely mortifying. In fact, right now as I'm talking, the, uh, the hairs are standing up on the back of my arm. Just the idea of someone being in your children's room. Yeah, horrifying. Yeah, right. 
Wow. Yeah, well, I think that it all comes back to this one core, core premise, which is we are adopting technology before we're securing it. It's that simple. And we did that. The internet is a perfect example. We started using it, and then we started putting firewalls in, but only because we were acting in response to, to an active threat. Um, and we didn't really re we didn't realise so much that we were basically opening our doors to the wild west when we connected ourselves up to the internet. And then we've seen with some of the IoT device issues, like IP cameras that people put in their houses to watch their kids and their dogs, were one of the first to be uh, used as a hacking tool against someone else. So, you know, I always get concerned about this when people turn around to me and they say, "Oh, self-driving car," and I'm like, "Have you really thought that through?" <laughs> <laughs> self-flying plane. <laughs> yeah, well, any, anything that, yeah, self-flying plane, well, they've been around for a while. Um, but I think, I think the thing is, is that anything that's, anything that's smart can be hacked. And I think what people are really not understand is we're letting in devices into our homes. I mean, the vast majority of televisions out there are smart. They have an IP address. They have apps. Yeah. Got they a have camera. cameras. They've got cameras. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I think, you know, without scaring the living daylights out of people, that I think everyone's got a responsibility to say, well, if you connect it, secure it. And I guess as a consumer, how do you, how do you then retrofit security on that? And that, that's, you know, that, that's the point I think around, you know, we're asking people to be cyber secure. Are we really educating them about how to be cyber secure, giving them the, the, the skills and the tools to do that? So in the car example... What was required there was an update of the vehicle's information system, like immediately. So how does the consumer actually do that? Exactly. And not only that, we, we spoke about the Tesla breach where one of the employees was directly accessing the code base for the Tesla operating system. It is scary stuff. The one fascinating point that I've found is um, we're working with some of the councils uh, in Australia and they're talking about things like smart cities and one of the uh, requests for, for uh, quotation that came out didn't mention anything about security. We were one of the only companies that approached them and said, hey, before you even think about implementing things like smart lights and smart bins, you should really create a security framework that is the first step before thinking about any implementation. And they were very impressed with our approach and, and are talking with us now, but you will have councils going, you know, the first thing we need to do is install a new smart light system, install a new bin system, install a new water management system. And if security isn't at the core of that, then exactly, it's going to be a bolt-on, it's going to be an afterthought, and it's not going to be up to the standard that we need to protect things like the baby monitor attack, the, the Tesla code injection, whatever it may be, which will lead to potential harm down the track. Cyber Hacker was brought to you by Podcast One and CTRL Group. Presented by me, Bastian Treptel, produced by Matt Dwyer, our very own Stephen Williams from CTRL Group, and special thanks to Professor David Lacey. Hacking is real. People and organisations are being taken down every day. If you'd like some professional advice and assistance, go online to ctrlgroup.com.au and we'll help you. <laughs>